Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. My guest this week is a founding member of the iconic rock band Jefferson Airplane, Yorma Kalkinen. Yorma and Jefferson Airplane's bassist Jack Cassidy later formed the band Hot Tuna, first as a side project, but more than 50 years later, they're still going strong, recording and touring to this day. Besides his work with Jefferson Airplane and the 14 albums he did with Hot Tuna, Yorma's also released 16 solo albums, and Rolling Stone magazine has ranked him number 54 on its list of the 100 greatest guitar players of all time. Yorma's received two Grammy nominations, the first for Best New Artist with Jefferson Airplane in 1967, and more recently in 2002 for Best Traditional Folk for his great album Blue Country Heart. In 1996, Yorma was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and in 2016 he received the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award for contributions to American music. With his wife Vanessa, Yorma currently owns and operates the Fur Peace Ranch, a 119-acre music and guitar camp located in the hills of southeast Ohio. His terrifically candid autobiography, Been So Long, My Life in Music, was published by St. Martin's Press in 2018. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Very, very thrilled today to welcome live from the Fur Peace Ranch in Ohio, a legendary musician who, among many accolades, has been nominated for two Grammy Awards, founding member of two of the most iconic bands of the last 50, 60 years, Jefferson Airplane and Hot Tuna a recipient of the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award in 2016, and a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. My pleasure and privilege to welcome and introduce Yorma Kaukinen. Hi, Yorma. Hey, man. How are you? Thanks for having me on your show. Thanks for joining us. I was telling you before we went live that um, you know your music's been a part of my life for a very long time, and I loved the opportunity to uh, dive deep and learn a lot about you and your music and look forward to uh, sharing those stories with our audience today. Awesome. So let's start in the beginning. You were born in D.C., but you moved around a lot because your dad had one of these jobs where he was being assigned to different places all over the world, right? Yeah, I was born in D.C. in a hospital that doesn't exist anymore, of course. And because of World War II and stuff, my dad was in the service, that uh, we wound up living with my grandparents. And my grandfather moved around, and we wound up living in Louisiana and Kansas. So I sort of like grew up moving around. And then towards the end of the 40s, we settled in D.C. And when my dad got out of the service, he wound up being in the Department of Labor for some reason or other. He got this job going to Pakistan, working for the Asia Foundation. And the next thing I knew, he was in the State Department, and that was it. We were 
government branch for the rest of rest of my brat life. And you ended up not only in um, different cities in America, but you ended up overseas as well, didn't you? I did. We did four years in Pakistan and six in the Philippines. And what was interesting, I was reading, Yorma's got an amazing book, an autobiography that came out a few years ago called Been So Long. Definitely worth everyone listening to our interview today. Definitely worth you checking out and reading the book. You'll learn a lot. But one thing that I found really interesting is that during World War II, the name Yorma was a foreign-sounding name. So some of the kids in the military housing project where you were living in Ann Arbor, Michigan at the time, thought that you might have been on the other side and were giving you a hard time. Yeah, I remember. I think the exact words were, it's funny, this is the stuff you I can't remember what I had for breakfast, but I remember this. <laughs> Nazi spy, that's what they thought I was. And uh, my mother came home from doing whatever she was doing, and they were they were getting ready to hang me with a coat hanger from a backhoe or something like that. But the good news is his mom showed up in time. I'm a junior, I guess, uh, even though my dad's passed away. My dad, when he was in the service, always called himself Jerry. And so that's a nickname that I took on fairly early in my life and kept really until I was in college and I went back to Yorma. Got it. Yeah, because we were talking before we went live about John Hammond Jr., who we'll talk about in a second. But in your book, John refers to you, you know, in, in dialogue as Jerry. And I was like, when, when did Yorma become Jerry and then go back to Yorma? And you just answered right. that question. Yeah, you, you can tell how long people have known me if they call me. <laughs> when did you start, you know, finding yourself drawn to music? Well, everybody in my family, my grandparents and my parents, everybody loved music. You know, it, it was an era, you know, before we have all this stuff we have now. And I'm, and I'm no better than anybody else. I'm not complaining about the rabbit holes we all go down. But but so so we had a piano at home and, and both my parents played the piano. My dad played the recorder. He played violin occasionally. Everybody sang. And it was no big deal because that was pre-television. That's just what people did, you know. So so I kind of grew up being surrounded by that stuff. And as a result, not being self-conscious, not, not feeling less than when I finally decided to learn to play something. I took piano lessons like every kid of my like economic group did. And I took them until, until I couldn't be made to do it anymore because the music didn't set me on fire. That would come later. Hmm. And then, obviously, you know, one of the groups that you're most well-known for is Hatuna that you formed with your friend Jack Cassidy. But going back to the early days of you discovering music, you met Jack when you were really young and you guys formed a band together. Yeah, I met I met Jack in in 56 when we came back from Pakistan. His older brother, uh, Jack's three years younger than me, and his older brother was like a year older than me, so we kind of gravitated together. And Chick, his older brother, was a huge record collector back then. And he loved, like, for example, he loved Sidney Bechet, loved all that New Orleans stuff, and he loved all the, all the classic chess recordings and all these different blues things. So I wound up listening. I'd, I'd go over to his place, and I wound up listening to this music. And, of course... It was incredibly more seductive than my 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 alternate universe is how much of that doggy in the window. Right. It was a lot more interesting to me than how much of that doggy in the window. And in the background, because Jack was a young kid, a kid back then, was Jack taking guitar lessons. So later on, when I started playing the guitar, 
he, he and I gravitated together because it was more fun in some respects playing music than it was listening to it. So we listened to a lot of music all the time also, but we got to play together. And before you knew it, we had, and I use the term really loosely, that we weren't even a garage band because my grandfather's car was in the garage. We were a living room band. <laughs> What's so interesting is you're talking about the mid-50s when you met Jack. And here we are recording this in 2021, and Jack is still your best friend. He is. You know, he, I was just talking to him yesterday. Uh, he's going to be coming out here soon to do some stuff at the ranch. Yeah, not only is he my best friend, my, my oldest friend, but we still genuinely like each other. Which is very uncommon. Don't have to say <laughs> truly, that. Truly, truly. So when you went to college, you know, you and Jack formed this band called The Triumphs, but you ended up going to college in Ohio. So right. why did you choose, you know, this must have been still in, in the mid to late 50s, right, when you went to college. Why choose Antioch and why choose Ohio when you were coming from D.C.? Sure, sure. So the, the, the important caveat to be aware of here is my extremely mediocre academic record. Now, in a normal world, I'd be a great-grandfather, but in this one, I have a 24-year-old son and a 15-year-old teenage daughter. My daughter is like, her grades, are, she's already taken college courses. She could, <laughs> she's a junior in high school, and she could leave now, but she doesn't want to. She's going to Brown University to check it out in, in a couple of weeks. That's a great school. That wasn't me. That wasn't me. So when I applied to colleges, I looked at a bunch of stuff, and, and Antioch looked interesting. I don't know why it looked. Well, I do know one reason why. Because you could actually entertain women in your dorm. That wasn't, that's not a big deal today. I understand that. But in 1959, that was a really big deal. So there was that. I only got accepted to the two colleges, the Georgetown Foreign Service School that I applied to because of my dad and Antioch College. You know, Antioch College just seemed like it was the right thing to do. So I remember they were still had steam trains back then. I took a train to go to Antioch my first, my first semester. And, uh, and I just remember here was this little place that, uh, you know, most colleges have edifice complexes. They're always building buildings and stuff like that. <laughs> Antioch looks the same today as it did 60 years ago. It's unbelievable. And there's just a bunch of people there. Oh, one of my friends. Oh, you're going to that Pinko Free Love School in the Midwest. And my answer was, you bet I am. Absolutely. There's a bunch of people playing music. And, and Ian Buchanan, who you read about in the book also, was responsible really for taking me under his wing and and really o opening those doors for me. Well, I love that point in the book. You're talking about Ian Buchanan, who was a student at Antioch when you got there. And you were playing your guitar parts, and you know so was he. And he looked at you, and he's like, come over here, Junior, let me show you how it's done. And he introduced you to Piedmont Blues. And you know, finger picking, we're going to talk about that in a second, but specifically the music of Reverend Gary Davis. So why don't you tell everybody what your recollection is of your early meetings with your classmate Ian Buchanan? Okay, so I couldn't have said it better myself than the way you said it. I'm not sure he said, come over here, Junior, in those words, but yeah, that's exactly what he said. And there was something about, there was just something so seductive to me about the music of Reverend Davis. Now, Ian, Ian wasn't, quote-unquote, a student of the Reverend. They were friends. 
Ian's muse was Lonnie Johnson. Lonnie Johnson was more of a jazz guitar player, and his stuff was completely over my head. But there was just something about the completeness of what Reverend Davis did with each songs that appealed to me as a sort of like a, an utterly non-joining kind of guy. You know, having the little rock and roll band we had was really the only thing I ever did that required joining. I just wasn't that guy. So to be able to do this by yourself and, and just the sound of the guitar, I realized, I, I remember thinking, God, I've been wasting my time because I'd already been playing the guitar for five years. Now, keep in mind, I started playing the guitar in 54 or 55. It was 1960 when I met Ian. And pretty much that's all that I did. Antioch back in those days was a pass-fail school. They didn't really give grades, which is probably the only way I was able to survive three quarters there. But in that time, I learned pretty much what's defined my life. Ian was incredibly patient with me. I don't know why, because he was not a patient. People that remember go, he wasn't a very patient guy. He was with me. How would you define the style of Reverend Davis and Blind Blake and, and some of these early influences? You know, you, you hear the name Piedmont Blues, you hear the name Finger Picking, sure. you hear the name East Coast. How would you define it to someone who doesn't know? Okay, so there's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of different ways, obviously, to play the guitar, which is one of the guitar's magic. To guys like me, the sort of holy trinity would be Blind Gary Davis, Blind Boy Fuller, and Blind Arthur Blake. As we know today, there's a lot of those guys out there, but those are, those are the guys that, that, that spoke to me in that time. And there was something about, aside from the fact that, that, that Ian kind of was the direct conduit to the Reverend, there was just something about the Reverend's joy in life. Not all his songs were uplifting. Death Don't Have No Mercy, one of my favorite Davis songs, is not exactly an uplifting song. But there was just something about his... I consider him a biophile. He was just a lover of life. Somehow there's always going to be the sun coming over the hill somewhere. And so many of his songs are just incredibly joyous and utterly complete in and of themselves. And that's where we get into that Piedmont style. So Reverend Davis used to talk about having three hands. He'd had his left hand, his fretting hand, and with his right hand, he had his thumb that was kind of like the left hand of a piano, and his fingers kind of like the right hand. And so it's a really complete way to approach the guitar. Reverend Davis, we, we could geek out about this for a long time. Reverend Davis was a two-finger picker. He played with two fingers. Ian was a three-finger picker, even though he could do the Reverend style. It immediately became apparent to me that three fingers was better than two. Some guys used their whole hand. Uh, I never did. These are bracing fingers for me because, because I consider this to be a weak finger. Hope I didn't offend anybody out there. <laughs> anyway... I mean, it's just such a rich thing. And then you think about a, a Texas guy like, like Lightning Hopkins, you know, completely different stylistic, but inherently the same on some level. The thumb keeping rhythm, the fingers, however many he chose to use, playing lead lines on top of it. It's a one-man band. How long did you stay at Antioch? So I was at Antioch for three quarters. We were in the quarter system then. There's, I was there the, the, the fall quarter... And then when I came back the next quarter when I met Ian, that's when John Hammond was a year behind me. That's when John surfaced. And then I had one more quarter as a co-op job. So I was really only on campus for two quarters. And then that co-op job where I worked in New York City and was hanging out with all those folkies. I mean, it, it's in the book. You know, New York City it's was It's all just in the book. It's all in the book. It's in the book. 
New York City was such an exciting place for that kind of music back then because, of course, you know, they were the, they were the, you know, the big dogs were, you know, playing real clubs and making money and stuff like that. And then there were all kinds of people like me, marginal non-entities who were just loving the music, playing hootenannies, et cetera, et cetera, and having a great time. Well, you mentioned John Hammond, John Hammond Jr., not to be confused with his father, John Hammond Sr., probably the greatest A&R man of all time. You know, for those who don't know, John Hammond Sr. signed everybody from Benny Goodman and Count Basie to Aretha Franklin and Bob Dylan and, and Bruce Springsteen, making A&R guys like me, you know, pale in comparison all the time. <laughs> but talk about meeting John Hammond Jr. and the fact that his dad was able to give him some Robert Johnson records that were not even available to anybody else at the time. Sure. Well, interestingly enough, John was at the uh, dorm down the hall from me. I believe it was the South Building. It's probably been condemned now. But anyway, we first bonded over motorcycles. I had a motorcycle and he, he had one and we liked all that kind of stuff. And then and then the music thing began to surface, and he, I remember he brought a couple of reel-to-reel tapes of what we now know as the two Robert Johnson records. And he, he played these, these tapes for me, and I'd never heard anything like that in my life, you know. And, and it was like, wow. By this time, I'd already been turned on to the Reverend Davis, not that long before, maybe maybe a month or so before. I mean, this is all new stuff for me back then. I was by far from a blues aficionado. And of course, I just couldn't see what Robert was doing. You know, I couldn't, I, I loved it, but it was, it, it was over my head. Not over John Hammond's, of course. And interestingly enough, if I can digress physically a little bit. So, so there's, there's this, this A seventh chord here, which I didn't know back then. I had no idea until like six months ago. That's the Robert Johnson chord. I'm going, you're kidding me. I didn't learn that chord until like five years ago. <laughs> so everybody associates you predominantly with the Bay Area of Northern California, San Francisco, sure. and Santa Clara. But so far, we've been talking about Pakistan, and we've been talking about Ann Arbor, Michigan, and we've been talking about Washington, D.C., and we've been talking sure. about Yellow Springs, Ohio, which is where Antioch is. How does Yorma come to leave all of that and go out west? So, first of all, obviously from this conversation, I, I'm an East Coast kid. I use the term kid loosely. <laughs> and and I always have been. However, a lot of magical things happen in California. So I wound up, after I left Antioch, I wound up going back to the Philippines. And I went to this Jesuit school called the Ateneo de Manila. And if you go to a Catholic college back in those days, you take a lot of like Thomistic philosophy and Aristotelian logic and all this kind of stuff that, that no other school but another Catholic university will give you credit for. So I had been, I've been, I've been reading all this Kerouac and all this stuff, and it just looked to me like San Francisco was a place you just had to go. And so when I thought about coming back to the States, I wanted to stay in college because everybody's getting starting to get drafted back then, and I didn't want to get drafted. So my quest for higher education was sort of sublimated with the real desire not to have to go into the service at the time. But in any case, once again, my grades were not good enough to go to the University of San Francisco where I wanted to go. But for some reason, they were good enough to go to the University of Santa Clara. Now, back in those days, I remember my dad complaining about 1500 bucks for a semester. 
I think it's 60,000 down there now, but that's another story altogether. But anyway, so so here's this sort of displaced East Coast kid that's now wound up in the South Bay area of, of San Francisco. And I wasn't quite in North Beach like I wanted to be, but I wasn't that far away. And the very first, I've told the story a million times with the magic of it never gets old. The very first week I was on campus, I'm wandering around. Now, keep in mind, Santa Clara was a very conservative all-male school the year before I got there. Their totem animal was the Bronco, the Santa Clara Broncos. And so the older Broncos, the upper-class Broncos, were very upset that there were now bronquettes in the school. They were upset that it would be, become a, you know, that oh, there were women in the school. And I'm going, I wanted to say, have you guys lost your mind? But anyway, so here I am in this very odd conservative kind of a thing. And I'm walking around and there's a mimeograph flyer on a telephone pole. And it talks about a hootenanny at the Folk Theater on First Street in San Jose. Wow. So I just recently, you know, I'd spent time in New York and this and that. So I figured, well, I guess I'll go and see what, what's going on. Now, I remember I had this stupid East Coast elitist thinking. I, it's so so stupid when I think about it today. But, but for some reason, I thought, you know, California is a long way from the source of all this music. I'll bet I can really show these people what's going on. So I go to this coffee house. And one of the first people that I met is this guy, Richmond Talbot, great blues player. He's passed away for quite a while ago, says, and Janis Joplin. And I realized there's not much I can show either one of these people, that's for sure. And all of a sudden, I realized that there's a wealth of incredibly deep musical talent of the music that I loved out there on the West Coast in, the, in, in Northern California. Janis co-opted me into backing her for a set because she wasn't backing herself on that very first night. And, and all of a sudden, I went from wandering around feeling like, you know, completely out of place on this very conservative college campus to being back where I needed to be with genuine artists. Well, let, let's put that in context for a second, because it's a lot of incredible information coming at us very fast. So the year is 1962. You're 22 years old. You show up at the University of Santa Clara. Your first week on campus, you see this mimeograph flyer for a hootenanny in San Jose. You go to that first hootenanny and you meet Janis Joplin, who's 21 years old at the time, right? Yeah. And she- Actually, I was still 21 and I think she was 20. Because my birthday's in December 23rd, so, so when I first got there, I think I was still 20. But anyway, yeah, we're, yes. But this is, you know, this is a decade or so plus or minus, before Big Brother. This is Janis Joplin just starting out. And she sees you with a guitar and says, you know, my accompanist isn't here. Can you accompany me? And that started this relationship musically between you and Janis way back when. So, you know, one of the things, when I think back about those times in California, everybody was so incredibly sociable with their music, really. And nobody had cars yet, really, because cars cost money and nobody had any money. So consequently, if you lived in San Jose or Santa Clara, you're kind of stuck there unless you're going to take a bus somewhere. Janice lived in San Francisco. When she came down to the offstage, she took a bus. Jerry Garcia was in Palo Alto, et cetera, et cetera. So, so everything was sort of like isolated in a way. But whenever people ran into each other, because we all loved the same thing, it was there was this utterly welcoming sort of atmosphere of, of like-minded spirits. And I remember there when Janice needed somebody to accompany her, and we messed around a little backstage, and we realized that we were both sort of springing from the same well. 
it was like, that's just what needed to happen. I don't think I realized until I got off stage. I mean, the first time I heard her voice, I realized I was in the presence of somebody very special. But when we finished playing that set, and later on, when my roommate at the time who had recorded it played it back for me, he went, I can't believe I was a part of that. Wow. Well, talk about the legendary typewriter tapes that happened sure. a year or two later. So that's in 64. Uh, that would have happened in 64. So all these musical things, this is before the bands, you know, when everybody's identity was tied up in a band and stuff like that. And so when Janice needed an accompaniment, if she couldn't find somebody, you know, and we'd played together, she would give me a holler. So she got a, a call to do a benefit at the coffee gallery, which is one of those old sort of like beatnik places on, on Grand Avenue, North Beach. And she came down to this house that my uh, ex-wife and I were renting at the time. It was a huge house. We had almost no furniture. So there was this, I'm talking about no furniture. I think I had a table for my tape recorder, maybe a chair or something. Anyway, had great, great room echo. In any case, so Janice had come down to rehearse so we could rehearse for this benefit that we were going to do. And my ex-wife was from Sweden, and so she was always writing letters home. We were just rehearsing, and she was just writing letters home, and that's where that came from. I still have that typewriter, by the way. We have it in our little museum here. She, she was not only writing, but she was typing with an old-fashioned typewriter. And if you go online, you can actually hear the typewriter tapes, and you can hear your ex-wife typing. That's right. That's correct. And some people go, well, I can't believe that. I go, look, you know, again, we were just playing music, and she was doing what she was doing. It wasn't like a performance, so... So, so many years after the facts, it's, I find all that more than interesting. Well, it's part of history. Little did you know it at the time, but, you know, so many years later, 55 plus years later, we're sitting here and talking about those typewriter tapes. As a corollary to that story, the Grateful Dead, this is after the bands were starting to get together, they had a, a, a sort of a complex in this little town in, in Northern California called Olympali that had been like a summer camp or something. And they had a swimming pool and cabins and all this kind of stuff. So it was Jack Cassidy, Jerry Garcia, Janice Joplin, and myself. And I remember Janice and I were talking about how long does it take men and women like us to be taken serious as musicians in this genre? And, you know, because it's like we, we're still like the kids. Well, you're not Bessie Smith or the, this person or that person. <laughs> and I remember Jerry said, we're going to be archetypes. And he was right. Yeah, he was. So, so many talented people in Northern California. Talk about your classmate, Bob Kinsey, introducing you to his former classmate. Sure. So Bob Kinsey, who just recently retired as the head of the Marine Biology Department of the University of Hawaii. I was walking around the campus and he was walking towards me barefoot with a beard. And I went, we looked at each other and realized we're going to need to know each other. <laughs> Is he, we were the only two oddballs in that school at that time. Anyway, so we got to know each other, and he went, you know, he listened to me play music, and he said, I've got a friend you need to meet. And he took me to Santa Cruz. He lived in Santa Cruz, and he was a surfer dude back then, he, he, as a music-loving surfer dude. And I met another surfer dude, and the other surfer dude turned out to be none other than Paul Kantner. And I remember back in those days... You know, you could be on one of those big beaches in uh, in Santa Cruz, and it was a cheap place to live. Like, remember San Francisco used to be a cheap place to live at one time? And there was this guy, Paul Cantner, and he was living with another guy named Bill Laudner, who wound up being the airplane's road manager for a while. 
And there were surfboards up against this old shack and this and that. We got to meet each other, and he had a Gibson J50 like mine, and he had a 12-string guitar, and he had a banjo. And we wound up, you know, he wasn't a blues player, but we both loved music, and we wound up getting to know each other. And subsequently, when he and Marty Bowden would get the airplane started, he had moved to San Francisco, and they looked for a guitar player. He called me, and that's who got me in the band. I read that you played a pivotal role in naming that band. Do you want to tell that story? Sure. So one of the characters in that pivotal role was Steve Richmond Talbot, who was the guy that I met that first night with, with Janis Joplin. He was older than me, and he actually worked on the railroad. He was a great blues player and singer. And since he actually had it's kind of like a blues-centric job, I mean, what's not, what's not bluesy about being working on a railroad, you know? So we were sitting around one day, but this was before the airplane. It was him, Steve Mann, great guitar player from L.A. You need to check out Steve Mann live at the Ash Grove sometime. Fantastic stuff. Uh, and Tom Hobson, San Francisco player, also gone. In any case, so we were sitting around, and it, it was sort of like that, how long do we have to be alive before we're taken seriously, blah, blah, blah. But this conversation was, Here's a bunch of white guys sitting around. What are we going to do for Nam the Blues? So Tom Hobson said, well, I could be blind outrage. <laughs> Steve Mann, who happened to be a Jewish guy, said, I'll be Lil Son Goldfarb. And Talbot looked at me and said, and you can be blind Thomas Jefferson Airplane. Now, we never used these names for anything. We just It was just a goof. So the airplane had one of our many band meetings, and that's another story altogether, looking for a name. Everybody was coming up with what I consider to be really stupid names. And I said, hey, listen, I got a stupid name for you. How about Thomas Jefferson Airplane? And they went, well, how about Jefferson Airplane? And that's how that happened. And did Steve Talbot ever remember that he was like, I, I gave you that name? You know, we never had that conversation, but I'm sure he did. And obviously, Steve coming up with Blind Thomas Jefferson Airplane to you was a tip of the hat to Blind Lemon Jefferson, you Absolutely. know, blues pioneer. Absolutely. So it all comes full circle. So when you formed this band with Paul Kantner and Marty Ballin, and there was a female singer named Signe Anderson, right? Yeah, Signe Anderson, yeah. And talk about the early days of Jefferson Airplane and how you guys came to get a record deal with RCA Records. Well, listen... You know, you being an A&R guy, no, nobody got luckier than we did. Nobody. <laughs> so there, there was a lot of confluence. There was a lot of confluence things happening. So in that early incarnation of the band, uh, Skip Spence, who was later with Moby Grape, was our original drummer. And that's a funny thing, too. I mean, Skip was a huge musical talent. His story is a very sad story, but huge musical talent. Marty, we're looking for a drummer a new drummer, and Marty looked at him and said, you know, that guy looks really cool. I'm going to ask him. And they asked Skip, do you play drums? And I think he said, no, but I can learn. And he played on the first, on the on the Takes Off sessions, and he did a great job. Anyway, so Signey, yeah. So Paul wanted vocal harmony, so he needed voice. He needed a female singer. So Signey was his choice because he and Marty had met her in the sort of, and you know what I mean, commercial folk scene in, uh -huh. in, the, in the San Francisco at the time. Well, anyway, we started playing, and there was a great music reviewer, Ralph Gleason. I know you're familiar with this stuff. And, you know, he seemed like an old guy then, 
But sad to say, he died way younger than I am today. But anyway, people took him seriously. When he wrote about something, people listened. And he was one of the first guys to write about rock music as a real art form in the San Francisco area. I don't know about any place else, but then, and he came to review the band and gave us a really glowing review. We had this manager at the time, uh, Matthew Cates. I would have pronounced his name Katz, but he pronounced it Cates. Anyway, and Matthew had some connections in LA and all of a sudden there was some interest and a bunch of people came up to listen to us play. We got auditioned by a lot of people. Uh, Phil Spector auditioned us, which is another <laughs> nightmare story. Can imagine. Et cetera, et cetera. But for whatever reason, we wound up going with RCA. I mean, again, you know, how often does something like that happen today? People work for years trying to just get an audition. And we just walked into that stuff. And I believe a lot of the credit goes to Ralph Gleason. I mean, I, I think we were talented and we were moderately innovated with what we were doing at the time, but nobody would have noticed us if it hadn't been for him. We recently did a s session similar to this. We sometimes do book club where we talk about great books about the history of music, and we had uh, Joel Selvin as our oh, guest, Joel, and Joel was a student of Ralph Gleason, so it all yes. comes yes. full circle there. We haven't talked about how Jack Cassidy joined Jefferson Airplane, and Jefferson Airplane needed a bass player. You said, oh, I have an idea, but Jack never played bass. You want to tell that story? Yeah, so in our little band, The Triumphs, in our living room band, we didn't even have a bass player. This guy named Mike Honeycutt played bass lines on a Gretsch country gentleman that had those mutes so you could mute the strings, and he just sort of thudded <laughs> away, sort of like a Johnny Cash kind of thing. Jack was the lead guitar player in that band. I just played rhythm guitar and, and sang when we didn't have another singer. So when I went away to college, there was a lot of guitar players. Danny Gatton was coming up in D.C. He was such a brilliant player, even that young, was getting all these gigs. And somebody had asked Jack to do a pickup job as a bass player, and Jack said, I've never played bass. And, and I really believe that I'm, you need to talk to Jack about this sometime. I believe the guy said, it only has four strings. How hard could it be? <laughs> we all know it's a lot harder than that. But, but, but Jack had listened to all these jazz cats and stuff like that. So, so by the time that I called Jack, he had been playing bass in a lot of bands for a number of years, a couple of years at least. And I remember I called him up. We're looking for a bass player. And I think I just wanted one of my homeboys from home. I just wanted one of my buddies to be there. But I had a good feeling about Jack. I mean, Jack is the kind of guy that makes the term detail freak seem utterly inadequate, you know. <laughs> and so I, so Jack showed up. We picked him up at the airport. And, and one of the first things I said to him is, you better be able to play this thing. Of course, of course he could. The other thing was, is that Jack read and wrote music at the time. And so back in those days, when you copyrighted songs, you needed to write out charts. And he could do that also. The difference between the first Jefferson Airplane album and the second Jefferson Airplane album, obviously, there was a big shift in the personnel. Skip sure. Spence was no longer in the group, and Signe Anderson had been replaced. Talk about Spencer Dryden joining, talk about Grace Slick joining, and talk about Jerry Garcia's role as spiritual advisor sure. on the next album. Sure. So the, the first album takes off in, in my—again, I'm not a music critic, but here's how I see it. That's a folk rock album. Surrealistic Pillow, our second album, is a rock and roll album. Signe 
got pregnant. She realized that, you know, it's like that joke. Dad, when I grow up, I want to be a musician. Son, you can't do both, you know. And so, <laughs> and so Signe realized she couldn't do both. And so she went off to raise a family, and that's what she did. We had seen Grace sing with a great society. And, and Grace, you know, one of the great female voices of my time. I mean, just still, you know, what, yeah. What can you say about Grace's voice? You know, so we somehow seduced her into, into coming into the band. And before that happened, however, Skip had left the band and Matthew, our ex-manager, had brought Spencer up from L.A., Looking back on it today, and I mean no disrespect to the, the many drummers that have played with Jefferson Airplane in the band's tenure, there is nobody more inventive or sensitive or creative or professional than Spencer. I've listened to, you know, I, I've had cause to listen to a lot of stuff recently because every now and then I get co-opted into doing an airplane song with somebody and I want to remember how it goes, sure. you know. And Spencer, man, his, his sensibilities were peerless. He was just such a creative guy. So he, he was sort of like on the tail end of Matthew's tenure as manager. He mm -hmm. came into the band. And to me, the key lineup from a creative point of view with Jefferson Airplane would have been me, Jack, Paul, Grace, Spencer, and Marty. That's patient zero for me. On Surrealistic Pillow, I read that the title of the album actually came from a comment that Jerry made. You know something... I wish I could be, and I'll, I'll, we'll get back to Jerry in a sec, too, because he's very important in that album. My recollection, and we're talking about half a century ago, so I'm not betting anything on this. My recollection was that Marty says it sounds like a surrealistic pillow, but they're both gone and we can't check that up now. So, mm -hmm. so I don't know. It could have been Jerry. It's the kind of thing he would have said. Everybody in the Jefferson Airplane, with the exception of, well, Marty had played in bands before, Spencer had played in bands. Jack had played in bands before. Everybody else was a complete novice in what it takes to make a band work. Jerry, at this point, had had jug bands, bluegrass bands, a, a rock and roll band, the Warlocks, which became the Grateful Dead, et cetera, et cetera. And he knew how to work with other people. And we realized that we needed some help in order to rein in our lack of professionalism, for lack of a better way to put it. So Jerry came on board. Now, he says spiritual advisor on that. In many respects, I mean, we could parse this in a lot of different ways. Rick Gerard produced that album, did a great job with it. Dave Hassinger is one of the engineers, great engineer. Jerry really helped keep us in line and gave us arranging ideas that we would actually listen to because he was one of us. Uh -huh. At some point, you ever get a chance to talk to Jack? He's got a mind like a steel trap, and he remembers all kinds of stuff. But Jerry is so important, in my opinion, to the sound of that album. Well, he um, actually played guitar on five songs as well. Absolutely. Oh, totally. Absolutely. He, he, he played a lot of rhythm guitar things on it. So when, when we're talking about that album, for those who don't know, the 1967 album Serialistic Pillow by Jefferson Airplane includes probably the two most famous Jefferson Airplane songs with Somebody to Love and White Rabbit. Sure. What do you remember, and you played the guitar solos on both of those songs, what do you remember about recording those songs specifically? So if you remember back in that era, Jefferson Airplane Takes Off was recorded on a three-track recorder. No Dolby, no noise reduction back in those days. Surrealistic Pillow was recorded on a four-track Ampex 
I actually owned that machine for a while. I wish I still had it. Huh. But anyway, no noise reduction. So overdubs, it required a lot of architecting on the part of somebody who knew that what he was doing with the recording of that time, which means very little collapsing of tracks, very little overdubbing. You really had to, you had to actually know what you were doing. I'm not just being dismissive of modern recording techniques because it's not, it's, that was half a century ago, but that was just the deal. The band laid basic tracks as a unit and you had to get an acceptable track and the producer would go, okay, we're good with that. Let's move on, you know, or you just played it until you made yourself sick. And then you'd go, yeah, the second take is the one, let's move on. So a lot of that stuff has a certain amount of excitement to me. If you listen to the Outvamp solo that I did for somebody to love, that last note is a B note that I'm stretching out from a C and I didn't quite get there. But that's become the sound. I've heard kids that play, I mean, bands that play that song, and they do that. It, I mean, today I fix it digitally. Oh, I can't have that. I got, I got to fix that. And I put that one note in, you know. The solo thing to, to White Rabbit, I mean, that's so bizarre. I mean, all those weird scale things, I mean... I mean, that stuff was so out of left field. There's not a blues note in that song. Uh -huh. And I realized that I couldn't have come up with a, with a, with a lead in with whatever you want to call the guitar, the, the lead guitar part. I couldn't do that today in a million years. And a couple of years ago, I live in Ohio. So if, they, if the Rock and Roll Halls of Fame, Hall of Fame needs a guy in the Hall of Fame, I'm, I'm kind of their go-to guy because I live here. And so... I got called upon to play White Rabbit with with a singer that they were doing something with at one of their Rock and Roll Hall of Fame functions. And I had been fooling with that song for many years, but I, but I went, you know, if I'm going to do this for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I should probably learn what I actually played. So I downloaded the song from, from iTunes for 99 cents, <laughs> and I spent two hours on our little stage here at the Fur Beach Ranch and actually learned the original solo. And in the process of doing that, again, I, I couldn't have thought of something like that in a million years today. What did you think of, you know, we talk about these two songs specifically becoming so iconic and, you know, becoming some of the most recognizable rock songs of all time. Do you remember your thoughts when you first heard either song? I think what I remember most, of, well, of course, we heard the Great Society do them, but we we made them our own. Right, just backing up for a second, the Great Society was the band that Grace was in yes, before right, Grace joining Jefferson yeah. Airplane. 
And inter- inter- interestingly enough, those two songs, nobody in our band, I mean, ex- well, Grace wrote White Rabbit, but her ex-brother-in-law wrote Somebody Love. Great song, by the way. So, so the two songs that she brought into the, into the airplane from the Great Society, those are really the reasons that, that I think that, that we had, that we got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame mm-hmm. and that we had hits for those songs. I, I don't think anybody can deny that. So inter- interestingly enough, the, the sound of Jefferson Airplane were not originally Jefferson Airplane songs. But I remember when we were working on those songs, when I heard Grace sing those songs, I mean, I, I may never hear another vocal performance like that as long as I live, really. But I remember being in the studio when she sang that stuff and, and just thinking, this is really special. Wow. And on that album, your song, Embryonic Journey, is arguably as famous and as well-known sure. because this was the album era that a lot of people listening to us today might not remember where you actually sat down and you listened to albums. It was part of culture and it was part of your life. You know, it wasn't just the song that you heard on the radio or the quote-unquote single. You know, it was the album experience. You know, listening to Embryonic Journey was just as impactful as listening to one of the songs that would eventually get on the radio. I never got rid of any of my vinyl, and I've got a Marantz Model 7. I collect stuff. I've got a bunch of that kind of stuff. Now, my friends go, how often do you listen to vinyl? I go, not often, but when I want to, I've got it. And when I listen to an album, I still listen to it that way. Mm. To me, it's like appointment listening. Now, I download stuff like everybody does because because we do. But when I get, when I get turned on to an artist, like like Gretchen Peters is a, is a Nashville songwriter who I dearly love, and she wrote, she did an album a couple of years ago called Dancing with the Beast. And I still, when I listen to a song on that album, I don't listen to a song. I listen to the entire thing sure. from start to finish because that's part of the story to me. And that's important because we did that stuff back then. So, yeah, to get, you know, I remember Rick Gerard, the guy that uh, that produced Surrealistic Pillow. I was sitting in the lobby at at, uh, at RCA on Ivor, Ivor and Sunset. And I was just sitting around and, and 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 playing Embryonic Journey, which I'd written a couple of years before, on the acoustic guitar. And Rick came out and went, "You got to record that song." Hmm. I'm going, "Come on, this is a rock and roll album. Nobody wants to hear this." He says, "No, I'm serious. You got to record that." So that was that was probably a set. I don't think I did more than two takes. It was either the first or second take, and it's drenched in real room reverb. Hmm. This is way before even Tide Clockworks right. and all that stuff right. that we all love so much. That was real up in the attic RCA Studio A room reverb. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, and th- that changed my life in a lot of ways, you mm-hmm. know, because later on when I started to play out, you know, as, as an acoustic solo player, people go, oh, yeah, I heard that song on uh, Surrealistic Pillow. Let's, let's, maybe I'll give you a listen and see what's going on. There you go. One thing that I think a lot of people don't realize, thinking back then, is how prolific Jefferson Airplane was. You guys were putting out 
one album, maybe even two albums a year, every year. And then after Surrealistic Pillow and Rick Gerard, you started working with the legendary Al Schmidt. You want to talk oh, about that? Absolutely. So Al just passed away recently. What a loss, you know. Did you know Al, by the way? I, I didn't. And, you know, but everybody that I know who knew him speaks so reverently of yes. him that I'm very, very sorry I never got to meet him. Indeed, you know. He was just a great guy. So, so again, here's a, here's the, a bunch of these these headstrong men and women in the airplane, of whom I was one. And RCA assigned Al Schmidt, who had an incredible track record with all kinds of people. I mean, I know you, I know you've read about him, and he did all this stuff. And here we get into the studio with this guy. I had a chance to talk to him about this years later. I went, you know, I was at a Tech Awards dinner with him, and I go, Al, you know, I just. I wish I'd, my mind was open to have learned more from you at that time, but he knew how to get the best from us. But in any case, so here's this incredible producer slash engineer that working with a bunch of lunatics that somehow managed to get great performances out of us and mix great records. I mean, his, his musical sensibilities were just, were just unbelievable, you know? And he did it really up until the, almost the month that he died. Mm. Yeah, he was, in his, he was in his 90s when he passed away. Yes, he was in his 90s, yeah. And he was just one of these guys that had golden ears, golden ears, you know. And he was a great guy. He could relate to the artist. You know, we never felt like he was talking down to us or trying to ram some corporate nonsense down our throats. I mean, he was such, such a contributing artist. And, yeah. A, a, a true genius talent. Talk about totally, the work totally. that that you and the band and Al all did together on Volunteers, which is such a legendary album. Sure. So, so again, we had Nicky Hopkins on that record, too. And a lot of times when, when you get a keyboard and a band, a rock and roll band, it, it almost becomes a keyboard band. That wasn't the case with Nicky. I mean, Nicky was such an amazing player. Another guy who died way too young. Well, Nicky played uh, with the Stones, for those who don't know. He, yes, he did. Yeah, he played with the Stones. But yeah, but then he came to California and played with Quicksilver Messenger Service. Right. And he, he, he was with us at Woodstock and stuff. I mean, he's a guy, for your listeners, well worth looking into because he's a brilliant player. But mm -hmm. anyway, so all of a sudden, here we are. Not only Nicky Hopkins, but Jerry Garcia playing pedal steel on, on the, I mean, we do the song on, on volunteers called the farm. I mean, it is a bona fide country song. There's no other way to look at it. It's a bona fide country song. And here's Jerry Garcia playing pedal steel. It's an incredibly eclectic album. I, mean, I don't know what the deal is with mainstream companies anymore because that's <laughs> that's not my universe anymore. But but I can't imagine that a mainstream company would would 
would allow an artist to do so many different things on a record rather than just their thing. Well, talk about the guests on that album. You mentioned Nikki and, and Jerry Garcia, but David Crosby has an incredible credit on that record. Jefferson Airplane does a version of David's Wooden Ships that right. a lot of people will, would know from Crosby, Stills & Nash. But yep. his credit is he's credited as Sailboat. All right, so... So, so David back in those days had a, I forget, a, I think it was like a 30-something foot sloop called the Mayan. And he used to keep it in the Caribbean, but they wound up sailing it down through the Panama Canal and they brought it up and he docked it in Sausalito. So wooden ships on the water, very free and easy. I mean, that's, that's David all the way. And for the guitar geeks out there... And Paul, they were doing lots of writing and hanging out together and stuff like that. And and David, you know, in some ways, I don't know if he'd agree with me or not. But David doesn't agree with many people. I love you. <laughs> but, uh, but he was, in a way, he was like an unsung member of our little family for yeah. a long time. So, yeah. Sailboat. Sailboat. The Maya wooden so, ship. So Volunteers was 1969, and 1969 famously was also Woodstock. And Jefferson Airplane's set at Woodstock is legendary because I don't know what time you were originally supposed to play, but as anyone who has seen the film knows that Jefferson Airplane, their Saturday set ended up starting at 8 a.m. Sunday morning and ending at 9.40 a.m. Sunday morning. What do you remember about Woodstock? It was a long night. That's all I <laughs> I mean, we talk about this a lot. You know, it's it's one of these interview things that you get to talk. What, what was Woodstock like? I go, look, you know, I understand it, it, it might... In many respects, it certainly is one of the most iconic festivals of all time for a lot of reasons. But if we had a gig like that today, it'd be, this gig sucks. I hope I never work for these people again as long as I live. I mean, the word amenity didn't exist in the rock and roll lexicon in those days. I think maybe there was one porta potty backstage. There there were no M&Ms of any color. I mean, it's, it's just wasn't the way things worked back then. Yeah, we were supposed to go on, and then it rained, and all these things happened, and uh, and it wound up being an amazing show. All right, friends, you have seen the heavy groups. Now you will see Morning Maniac music. Believe me, yeah. It's a new dawn. Yeah, the regular guys. And Nicky Hopkins. For many years, I never like listened to myself at all. Of late, I've gone back and listened to a lot of 
the airplane stuff and have come to appreciate on, on another level entirely, you know, being having gotten this much distance from it. And stuff like stuff like uh, like Woodstock. I mean, I'm going to say it, even though I was a member of the band the, in that era, in, in that in that little year or two year period, the airplane was an awesome live band. Mm-hmm. Well, one other awesome live artist that you first discovered at Woodstock is an artist that I worked with for a long time um, prior to my joining Atlantic, and that's Carlos Santana. So oh Santana told me his Woodstock story, which is, you know, famously about, you know, his encounter with Jerry coming off the bus and, you know, some substances that made his guitar, you know, feel like a serpent that kept moving around. He's like, so Pete, if you ever watch the Woodstock movie and you look at me like going crazy on the frets of the guitar, that's because it was a serpent and it was moving. And and I figured it was the one in the middle because there was one on top and one on the bottom. You know, it's like crazy. Yes. Ah, yes. Substances. (laughs) Well, it certainly certainly was a psychedelic weekend. I've never really been a a psychedelic guitar player, even though it's, I understand it's a genre. I have been dosed a couple of times. I didn't find it <laughs> fun, but I'm so glad you mentioned Santana because that's the first time I'd seen, I've seen Carlos play with guys around San Francisco, but that's the first time I saw Santana. And to this day, and I've seen it in the movie, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's one of the greatest live performances I've ever seen in my life. And I've seen a lot of them. Totally. I remember that show that the Carlos has set. It's just, it's unbelievable. And then Carlos played on uh, the next Jefferson Airplane album, Bart. Sure. So again, San Francisco, all of us folks hanging out. Uh, everybody was recording at Wally Hyder's back then. It was on, uh, I can't remember whether it was Polk or po- Post. It was on Post Street, on Post Street. And they had a bunch of rooms. And sometimes, I mean, at one point, like when, when David did, uh, if only I could remember my name, all the characters, the disparate characters on the record were recording in that building at that time. And Carlos was hanging out at that time. And I don't remember if we set out to go, you know, we need Carlos on this song, or if he just happened to be in the building. He and Michael Shreve, also from Santana, played on on Bark. And that was the first album, I believe, that Papa John Creech joined Jefferson Airplane. Talk about Papa John. Wow. Yeah, may he rest in peace. What a guy. So we were playing Winterland, and and Joey Covington and Marty Ballin, as I recall, had met Papa John on a club in La Brea's in L.A. called, I believe it was called, uh, gosh, I'm trying to think what it was called, I... Some club in La Brea. Anyway, 
And so, and so they brought, they brought Papa John up and he came, we introduced us to us. He was, he's just a great guy. Is it okay if Papa John sits in with us? Sure. We said, and we loved it. And he became a, a de facto member of the airplane and hot tuna. Well, talk about how hot tuna came to be, because here you are releasing recording and releasing you know, at least one album a year with Jefferson Airplane. But at a certain point, Grace needs to go on vocal rest. Is that what happened when you and Jack yeah. decided to do something else? Well, I think I think there was a lot of things going on. I mean, Grace Grace did. I think she had nodes that needed to be taken care of. Uh, and you know, Jack and I had been messing around with stuff. Uh, you, know, you know, nothing had really solidified. At some point, if I had to do it over again... I would have left the band in a more adult way. We probably would have done a farewell tour and whatever, whatever, whatever the, the professionals do, you know. But but in typical Yorma fashion, uh, <laughs> at some at some point, for, for whatever reason, I talked to Grace about this a little bit too. Uh, I was just done. I think you know, looking back at it this many years, it just wasn't for me, and I'm only speaking for myself. It just wasn't as much fun anymore. Uh, it, you know, when we, when we, the airplane in its earlier years through volunteers, certainly we rehearsed relentlessly. We played all the time together. We did everything together. Everybody was in the studio at the same time. And then as time moved on, you know, we'd cut basic tracks or somebody would show up for an overdub. Anyway, it just wasn't as sociable. I think that had a lot to do with, with me branching out a little more with Hot Tuna and Jack and I had been messing around with this. And so, and it was starting to go somewhere. And, and it is true that the first Hot Tuna record is live, just live acoustic with me and Jack and Will Scarter playing harmonica. But Hot Tuna evolved because me hearing, uh, hearing Cream at the Fillmore mm. changed my life wow. in a profound way. And seeing Cream live in many respects set the stage for at least the format of an electric hot tuna. I remember that, uh, I think I dropped acid or something like that. I guess I'm allowed to say that we're adults. And I saw Cream. I remember they played Sunshine of Your Love and all this stuff. It was their first tour of the United States. I flipped out and I'd just never seen anything like it before. And I remember I went back to my apartment. I was still occasionally playing Rickenbacker 12 string with the band. I looked at this thing. It wasn't a snake. It was a 12 string guitar. And I took it and I threw it through the wall like a spear. The good news is the Rickenbackers are well-made. <laughs> and it was a cheesy little apartment. So it, did, it, it stuck in the wall like a spear, but I was able to extricate it and sell it. I kind of wish I still had it. <laughs> anyway, I mean, what, what, Cream, what the guys in Cream did with, uh, with transliterating traditional blues into that, into that electric trio, unbelievable. And I was going to mention Disraeli Gears, which right. Felix Papillardi produced. Sure. And of the songs that they did not write for that session, and um, notably Outside Woman Blues comes to mind, is from one of Nick Pearl's Yazoo collections. I don't know which one. I'll have to find it again. But but that... That little lick that... The song on Disraeli Gears, it's on the original. It's on an acoustic guitar, but it's on the original. So they did such a great job with that stuff. And as such a huge lover of that music, I remember hearing what they did, and I went, yeah, this is awesome. So you said that you stopped having fun in Jefferson Airplane. You know, now being informed by this electric blues that you saw 
cream do. Were you starting to have fun with Jack and Electric Hot Tuna and it was scratching your itch creatively and this felt like it was what you were meant to be doing? Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better. Just to back up just a little bit, one of the things that didn't happen with the airplane is we didn't wind up hating each other, you know, which was a good thing. I just, for some reason, the music just wasn't doing it for me. But when Jack and I started to do the trio thing, it was just balls-to-the-wall fun. Now, our first record, the first Hot Tuna record, we did a repertoire of the acoustic stuff that we'd been playing in hotel rooms for the previous four or five years. And that's another aspect of Hot Tuna also, but the electric stuff was just plain fun. Now, the kids have all these pedals today. You can sound like this. You can sound like that. But all that stuff was new. People used to ask me, Jefferson Airplane, what kind of pedals did you use? And I went, well, they didn't really have... Well, that's not true. I had, I had a Maestro Fuzz Tone and a Wawa pedal because Eric had one. <laughs> and that was about it. But anyway, so and we're just having all this fun, the stuff being able to play really loud. And, and it was a fertile songwriting period for me also. Sometimes people will go, well, you don't, you don't write songs like that anymore. And I go, well, because I'm not that person anymore. Right. You, know, you, you, you got to dance to the right. one that brought you, and that's right. the deal. If I could write songs like, like Genesis all the time, trust me, I would. You mentioned Jimmy Wedge, speaking of guys that write songs like that all the time. That's another animal altogether. Oh, my God. That's rare error right totally. there. But, totally. you know, you mentioned uh, Genesis, which is off your first solo album called Qua in 1974 right. that you did with Tom Hobson, who you mentioned earlier. Jack Cassidy produced the record. But that song, Genesis, I was telling you before we went live that my older sister, you know, wore out the grooves on that record as a teenager. And I just remember almost like a siren song being, you know, drawn to that song, asking her to play it over and over again. Times come for us to pause And think of living as it was into the future we must cross, must cross I'd like to go with you And I'd like to go with you And that song rightly has been synced now, you know, so many years later in film and television. I read in your book how your son watched one of the films with you and said, Dad, you know who those actors are? Yeah. So Wally Pfister, he did this movie called Transcendence with Johnny Depp. It's a long story, but he wound up using Gen Genesis as the only non-soundtrack movie, uh, music rather. And it was a profitable year for me. Thanks, Wally. Really appreciate it. <laughs> Took care of my health care with, uh, with Astra. But anyway, yeah, so, 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 so Zach, I, he comes to visit me, and I've got a copy of the, of the Blu-ray, and I go, oh, look, son, I got, I got a song in this movie, and uh, it's a good movie. You'll, you know, it's a science fiction movie. You'll like it. So we put it on, and he goes, well, Dad, that's Johnny Depp. And I went, well, yeah, it is. And he goes, Dad, that's Morgan Freeman. I went, well, yeah, it is. He goes, Dad, it's a real movie. I go, what, do you think we shot a Super 8 in the backyard? <laughs> 
So back to Qua for a second, the album that Genesis comes from. It was voted number one. There's a great music critic named Colin Larkin. He has um, a book with his all-time top thousand albums, and there's a section of all-time 50 long-forgotten gems, and Qua in the third edition of that book, is voted the number one album on that list. So wow. I don't know what that means, but, you know, something to talk about. Nice talking. Well, well, it is something to talk about. I mean, you know, you know guys like me, you, you love when that happens. I mean, again, you never know what's going to happen. I mean, if you think about, you know, Qua and some of the other songs recorded at that time, Mallory Earl was the engineer at that time, and I remember that he and Jack talked about doing string parts and Tom Salisbury that did the orchestration for the French horns and the strings and stuff like that. I mean, that's something I wouldn't have, it would have never crossed my mind. He did such a beautiful job with those orchestral parts. And so recently I was just wondering, gee, I wonder if he's still alive. And the answer is yes, he's done thousands of scores and stuff like that. But man, what a job he did for us. I mean, it's just, he, he listened to those acoustic guitar parts that I played on that and wrote an orchestral part around it. I mean, how lucky am I to have somebody do that for me? And Mallory Earl produced a bunch of your Hot Tuna records as well. He did. He did, yes. So between the Hot Tuna records and the Yorma solo records, you were super prolific in the 70s and the 80s. Right. You know, continuing into the 21st century, before we went live, we were talking about Blue Country Heart, the album that you made in 2002 for Columbia Records with Yves Bouvet, great A&R guy, co-producing the record with Roger Moutinot. You know, and that's a great record. It was Grammy-nominated for Best Traditional Folk Album in 2002. And you talk about players. You know, that album, Jerry Douglas on Dobro, Bella Fleck, Sam Bush, Byron House. What a record. Yeah, too bad we couldn't get the good guys out. <laughs> yeah, and you know, and, and Eve, God bless him, you know. When we, I told you, I, I bird, uh, he, he sent me like a thousand songs. We, I spent over a year picking the songs to do on that one. And we picked the songs that we're going to do. And he wouldn't let any of, we, we didn't rehearse together. He wouldn't tell the guys and the, 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 the Jerry, the guys, what we we're going to play. We did all that stuff live, unrehearsed. But I mean, when you're playing with guys like that, you know, for, with that kind of music, you don't really have to rehearse. And I remember we started out, we started out being like really tentative and musically respectful of each other and all that kind of stuff. And Eve goes, hold it, hold it. He says, guys, cut it out. Get into the space, make some noise. So you received the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award in 2016. You were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1996. What were those two moments like for you? Is that something that, you take seriously as a musician where you look at you look at it as a validation of your work because some people are like, oh, I don't care about the Grammys. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't think any of us or most of us don't get into this game for accolades or awards. And I've heard people be, you know, dissing this and that. And I guess that if that's the way you feel, it's okay. Listen, it's an honor to be appreciated by anybody, much less your peers. When we got that Grammy a Lifetime Achievement Award in 16, I was, you know, you, you wind up having a lot of dinners with people and this and that and talking about it. I didn't realize that the airplane got a Grammy nomination back in... 67. Back when Pillow came out. I had no idea. For Best because, New Artist, by the way. 
Oh, right. Best new artist. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I really. And I talked to I talked to Grace. Do you know that? No. It just we just I mean, it's not that we didn't care about it. We just didn't know about it. You know, this many years down the road. Oh, the, and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So I was doing an interview with Jack and somebody asked him this question. And Jack goes, you know, when we were kids, we always wanted to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I tapped him on the shoulder. Hey, Jack. It didn't exist. We, kids, we didn't have the Rock and Roll <laughs> Hall of Fame. But I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, it's validation from your peers. I mean, one sure. of one of the, the most incredible things, though, if you look back on, you know, 50 plus years of music, the relationships, obviously you and Jack, you know, from the age of 16, you know, 65 years later, you're still best friends. But we were talking about your great book earlier, Been So Long, the foreword is written by Grace Slick. So you guys are still in touch. Oh, yeah. You know, we've been working with Jeff Jampold, uh, Jeff and his company, their legacy management company, and most of their clients are dead, like The Doors and... Uh, Etc. Etc. We're still alive, but anyway, catalogs need to be dealt with and stuff like that. And Grace and I have been have remained friends over the years. I remember a couple of years ago, apropos of nothing, I called her up because I said, "You know, Grace, I never told you this, but I need to say it. It was an honor to have made music with you." Wow. And and Grace was touched, and Grace doesn't touch easily. <laughs> well, you think about just the fact that time passes and we all get older. And unfortunately, you know, Marty Ballin recently passed away and Signe Anderson recently passed away. Paul Kantner passed yeah. away. And you and Jack and Grace, and, and that's about it right now. Yeah, we're the, we're the last three, yeah. So talk about the Furpiece Ranch, which is where we're talking sure. to you from today. How did you find this ranch in Ohio, come to call it the Furpiece Ranch, and to do all the great music education that you've been doing? So... In our conversation, you know, there have been a lot of questions. How did you get your record deal? How did this happen? How did that happen? And the bottom line really is, you know, it doesn't hurt to have talent and it doesn't hurt to work hard, but you got to be lucky. Me and my friends have been, in, in many respects, have been the luckiest people in the world. So in 1989, after the Airplane Reunion Tour, which wasn't one of the luckiest things, but it wasn't a tragedy either. Anyway, so I was living in upstate New York with my wife, Vanessa, and I get this phone call out of the blue from this friend of mine who I'd known from Florida from back in the 60s. And he goes, Yorma, I've got 116 acres of property in southeast Ohio in Meigs County, which used to be famous for growing pot. Now it's all legal, so it's not that famous anymore. Anyway, I've got this property. I'm going to sell it. And I want $32,000 for it. My wife's going, hang. She's going, hang up the phone. <laughs> but I didn't hang up the phone. I went down and looked at the property. And I bought 100 plus acres of land in southeast Ohio. There was nothing on it. This, this land had been farmed in the 1800s. But it, it, had been, it was just multi-floral rose, which is a horrible pricker bush and poison ivy and all kinds of stuff. So we bought this piece of property. And uh, we came down and we looked at it and we looked at each other and we, you know, we, we sort of talked because I have always enjoyed teaching. We, you, know, I said, you know, maybe we can do something with this. Now, these days when people get an idea, they start a website. In those days when people got an idea, you, you made letterhead stationery and T-shirts. So we came up with the idea of Fur Piece Ranch 
It's a fur piece from anywhere. But that was it. Then we got to looking at the property and we cleaned up camouflage netting and start boxes because they'd been growing pot here for a number of years and stuff like that. And in the mid-90s, my wife Vanessa, who was a civil engineer before we got married, go, we can do this. And she did the planning and et cetera, et cetera. We're in the library right here. Wow. We have about, I think we have 27 or 28 buildings. We now have our own little 200 plus seat theater. We have an NPR radio show. We did our quarantine concerts from our little video production thing here. We've got a kitchen, we've got cabins and all that kind of stuff. And it's a beautiful piece of property. You get some incredible artists who come and do your concert series. Absolutely. Um, you know, we talked about Sam Bush earlier, but sure. just in 2021 alone, Susie Boggess, Rodney Foster, Steve Kimmock, G. Smith, Wishbone Ash, sure. Tom Rush, and of course, Hatuna and Yorma Solo with Vanessa answering some questions from the fans. As right. John Perellis mentioned when he uh, gave a critic's pick as the top pandemic concert to the Fur Peace Ranch quarantine concerts in July of 2020. Back to your memoir for a second. Been sure. so long which came out on my birthday, actually, in 2018. But what's interesting about this book to me is the book is very, very candid, where you talk about some very difficult, uncomfortable subjects. You talk about affairs. You talk about children born of affairs. You talk about heroin addiction. Was it really challenging to get to such an emotional place to tell these stories? You know, just just to show how things turn out, as we're having this conversation, my son, who's now 24 years old, is visiting my wife and daughter, myself, with his girlfriend and spending the week with us here. It's, it's amazing how life turns out. But yeah, but to get back to your question, it's not a secret I'm a recovering alcoholic, and I'm not going to delve into recovery because that's, that's a whole other thing altogether. But, but it was important to me, if I was going to do this project, that I was going to be able to be candid and honest without telling war stories, because everybody's got them. I, I mean, who cares? I mean, that's just really not interesting. I've had some obstacles in my life, many of which I've created myself, and others just because life is life. And for me to be able to proceed forward, uh, I just really needed to be able to be honest with that. Otherwise, there was no point in doing the book. Now, about 10 or 15 years ago, I was approached by another publishing house. St. Martin's Press was fantastic to work with. Another publishing house that wanted a co-writer to do something. And I realized when I sat with them and talked, they just wanted me to diss dirt about people that were more famous than me. And I wasn't interested in that, you know. So I think I've had a moderately interesting life, you know. I've Here I am. I'm 80 years old. And, uh, you know, by the grace of God, I'm still moderately healthy and stuff like that. And these things need to be talked about. So, yeah, I had to make myself comfortable saying those things out loud. Now, when I did the audio book, you know, when I did the audio book and I decided I wanted to read it myself, reading a lot of this stuff, especially the part where my mother died, was really difficult. But this producer, Matty Argeropoulos, that I work with, that she does audiobooks, man, she held my hand through the whole wow. thing. Sometimes we had to go line by line. But that was an awesome experience also. I mean, I really, when I came through that, I said, you know, I really needed to do that. Mm. For me, the whole thing was an incredible experience. Well, it's therapeutic too, you know. Oh, absolutely. No question about it. So much of what you're doing now at the ranch is educational. There's actually a website called Breakdown Way where 
you know, yeah. if you if you want to, you know, as a guitar player, you can go on and you can sign up for lessons where Yorma can teach you guitar. What what does education mean to you now? So for a guy, you know, education is really important to me, and I'm not talking about going to school. I don't say this to my kids. I want them to have good grades. But as we said earlier, that wasn't that, my education was a little bit different than that. It's an odd little corner of the musical universe that I inhabit. And so it's not for everybody, but for people that like that kind of stuff, to be able to pass on this art form, and because we have other people on Breakdown Way other than myself, and at the ranch too, to get people that are able to teach and pass on this, this stuff that I still love just as much as I ever did, I think it's important. It keeps it as a living art form, you know. And I started teaching. Paul Cantor got me a job teaching at the music store that he taught at in San Jose when, when we were young. And I really enjoyed doing it, and I still do it. People always go, man, you're so patient. I go, I'm really not patient. There's a lot of stuff that I'm not patient with. But I really enjoy showing people how to do stuff and, and watching that light go on when I, when I think that they get it, you know. So being able to pass that on, that's important to me. Well, for anyone who hasn't read the book, highly recommended, you know, not just about stories about music, but stories about life for Yorma's memoir, Been So Long. And even though the book was published a few years ago, we're, we're recording this in late 2021, and the book was released in 2018, but you can continue to keep up with Yorma, with Yorma's blog, Cracks in the Finish, is still updated all the time with new entries. Blogging is what led you to write the book, right? Absolutely. So I, I was looking at the blog recently, and I saw that you're actually, you've left the ranch, and you're actually doing some live gigs now. What's that like? Wow. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. I mean, first of all, about the blog, some are more interesting than others. Sometimes they're just set lists, or, and sometimes I... Sometimes it's something I'm going to save to use for another book. <laughs> anyway, so yeah. So, so yeah, my world has opened up again. Guys like me, we've been out of work for a while. Um, I, we were lucky that we don't have a mortgage, so that was a good thing. We, <laughs> we, 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 got, we got through it. So, yeah, so, so over the pandemic, I, I had done some, some very limited gigs with very sparsely populated rooms. Uh, it was just nice to get out there and do something. But... Uh, we're getting ready to do an electric tour. I just did a two-week tour by myself, and I did one with my buddy John Hurlbut. We, we might even talk about the record that he and I did together over the pandemic. Yeah, great record. Yeah, to, to, get, to get out there again, you know, there's an incredible feeling that I'm getting of really no-nonsense emotion between us as performers and the audiences that are coming out to see us perform because none of us could do this for so long. I think that all of us are appreciating that moment so much more. Because why you take it for granted. I'm going to go to a show. What are you going to say? Well, I'll see Yorma for half the evening, then I'll go see Santana at the garden or whatever, you know. I think just that the fact that we're out there being able to interact with human beings again, you know, in an artful kind of way has been very moving for all of us. Well, for anyone who has the opportunity to see Yorma live, whether it's a Yorma solo show or an electric hot tuna show or an acoustic hot tuna show. These shows are, you get what you pay for and then some because the shows are long. The shows are very entertaining. There's a lot of music. You know, I'm looking forward to coming out myself after pandemic when you guys hit the uh, tri-state area of New York and where we are. You know, hopefully we'll be able to see on the road soon. 
you'll always be welcome. You know how to get a hold of me. And if you need to, if you need a couple extra tickets, I know somebody in upper middle management. <laughs> well, this was excellent. I really appreciate you joining us from the ranch. And thank you for the conversation. And thank you for the amazing music. Thank you, Yorma Kalkinen. Thank you, sir. Great pleasure. We are volunteers of America. Volunteers of America. Volunteers of America. Volunteers of America. Thanks a lot to Yorma Kalkinen for joining us this week. You can find current tour dates and events for Hot Tuna at their website, hottuna.com. They'll be touring this summer with Little Feet as part of the Waiting for Columbus 45th Anniversary Tour. For more information on Yorma and Vanessa's Fur Peace Ranch, check out furpeaceranch.com. Special thanks this week to Paul Karp for helping to set up this interview. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganbard, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Willie Fastenau, Catherine Hoppy, Kayla Flores, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on high school.